All right. In Revelation 13, verses 3 to 6, we have a very controversial point, uh, a very controversial uh, event, which is the resurrection of a man, not by God's power, but by Satan's power. Many claim that this is not possible, and indeed they are right in saying that this is not possible for Satan to give life, but he can mimic life, just as Janus and Jambri uh, in Exodus during the uh, 10 plagues mimicked a certain amount of uh, God's signs that he gave through Abraham and Aaron. So Satan was able to mimic through the, uh, through the magicians of Egypt, Satan himself will reanimate uh, the Antichrist after he is killed. We saw in Revelation chapter 1 that Jesus Christ has the keys to death and Hades. Um, Satan does not have control or dominion at that point over, over death. So he will not be able to, and indeed never has been able to, bring someone back to life but he will be able to indwell the Antichrist. Mm -hmm. And that, I believe, is how he is able to mimic a resurrection. Mm -hmm. But let's look at it. Let's make sure that the text um, is actually the source of that information and it's not just theological rambling. So the indwelling, uh, verses 3 and 4 in chapter 13, we see, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? So we see in verse 3, it says, I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. Many people point to this and say, see, it is as if, not that it was slain. Well, this is talking not about the Antichrist itself, but the symbol that depicts the Antichrist. So the symbol itself appeared to be slain, but then he interprets this and said, and his fatal wound was healed. This term fatal wound uh, identifies this wound as one that did indeed kill. And uh, this is backed up very, very well by the Greek, where the same exact phrase is used to identify the death of the lamb, the savior of our sins, as it is for the death wound that was rendered to the Antichrist. So just as surely as Jesus Christ himself died, so the Antichrist, the man that Satan will indwell, will die. Um, so it says this host esphag men name, esthanaton, which is death and the one head as killed by violence into death. So with the lamb, it says a lamb standing as killed by violence. So it's not necessarily as if it had been killed, but depicting the manner of death. And that manner of death was by a violent means. Um, so it is killed by violence. Now in Revelation 13.3, it is an emphatically depicted as this was not just killed by violence. It uses the word killed as in murder, uh, but it also says into death. Um, it is very clear, whereas the lamb standing as killed by violence in Revelation 5, 6, being our savior, the Lord, he doesn't need to emphatically declare here that that was into death because that is the entire teaching of the New Testament, that the Lord Jesus Christ came and died physically into death, taking the penalty of our sins. So when we encounter this in Revelation 5, 6, there's no reason to doubt that this death was a real death. But John, understanding likely and inspired by the Holy Spirit, um, has reason to believe that this being is something that has never been seen before. Um, he has to clarify and he says, yes, it was into death. He was killed. He was killed by violence, and he was killed by violence until he was dead. Um, this is what happens to the Antichrist. The weapon which was used, we'll see in Revelation 13, 14. This is next week. Um, but we see that it will be some sort of a sword. 
Um, he says, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth. This is speaking of the false prophet that will come up and point to the Antichrist and say, look, he is the Christ. Uh, so it says, and he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the sign which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image in the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. So it will be by some sort of blade. That is the Greek word here. The sword depicts a blade. Uh, I really liked how the how Tim LaHaye handled this in the Left Behind series. Again, that is a fictional story, uh, but he does pack it with theology. Again, Tim LaHaye is a prophecy scholar. Jerry Jenkins, the author, um, is a fictional author, and he does take liberties. Uh, but he has two characters um, in the Left Behind series, Rayford and Hyam. And Rayford finds a gun called a saber. So he thinks this is uh, the weapon that is supposed to kill the Antichrist because it is called a saber. Well, I think this was very much influenced by Tim LaHaye telling Jerry Jenkins how to write his fiction because lots of people will try to uh, interpret scripture this way and say similarity means it is the same thing because we in English have chosen to name something uh, that that must be what God's word intended uh, I've seen this done with creation as well saying that God doesn't understand science the Bible is scientifically illiterate because the Bible categorizes bats as birds well who decided that bats are not birds scientists decided that God created bats and tells us that they are birds. So obviously his categorization is different than the criteria of the categorization of the scientists. So here, God has chosen to use the word a sword. Uh, and so we will interpret it as a sword, just as Tim LaHaye did, where when Rayford went to take a shot at the Antichrist, he was tripped and fell backwards and missed, but a man jumped up from behind the Antichrist in the crowd uh, and stabbed him with a sword uh, so that a surprise fulfillment to the word happened. And we see that just as the Lord's first coming happened to the word, so much so that it was surprising. Um, I was just reading this morning in uh, Yeshua, the life of Christ, um, the Jewish life of Christ how the, uh, the Jews who didn't really take the prophecies of uh, Balaam and Daniel and Micah, or Malachi rather, very seriously, uh, no, it was Micah, um, when it was time for the Lord to be born, they didn't know. They had Daniel's time clock, his, uh, his uh, 70 weeks of years, they could have seen that this is the year the Lord is to be born. They also had the star of Bethlehem that they could have identified that this is the star pointing towards the Lord. But it wasn't until kings from the Orient came and took these prophecies literally that um, the Lord was discovered in a private home as a child. Herod instructed these kings of the Orient to identify who that uh, who that child is that is supposed to be the king of Israel. But when Herod went to the, the students of prophecy within Israel, they were able to tell him what city the Lord is supposed to be born in. But in order to do that, they had to interpret scripture literally. And that was something that they were not doing at the time. So uh, we see that the Lord... Uh, fulfilled prophecy very literally in his first coming. And that gives us confidence to take the Lord's word very literally um, concerning his second coming. So this Antichrist will be stabbed by a sword, some sort of blade. All right, so we know that he will die. We know by what means he will die. But how do we know that he will be resurrected? How do we know it's a real resurrection? In Revelation 13, 14, the word used for this um, 
literally says that he had a wound. He had the wound of a sword, and then he lived. Now, this is a chi continuative, uh, meaning that it's a conjunction that means this happened, and then after this happened, another thing happened. So it says he had the wound of the sword, and then after that wound of the sword, which we know proved fatal, he lived. And we might say that's weak evidence, but this is exactly the same way that Revelation 2.8 uh, speaks of, of, uh, of the resurrection, saying that uh, he who became dead, speaking of Jesus Christ, and lived. He died and lived. This doesn't mean he did both at the same time. This means the one happened, the necros happened, and then after that, the adzesin, the life, happened. So in the same Greek construction that John used to speak of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he uses that same construction for the Antichrist, where he died and then came to life. Now we will see that this life is uh, characterized quite differently. Where Jesus Christ died and was resurrected into a glorified body, a body born of the Spirit, the Antichrist will be resurrected not into a glorified body born of the Spirit, but a demonic body born of Satan's spirit and Satan's seed. He is the final fulfillment of this seed of the serpent. Uh, we being born again through the Holy Spirit, we possess a new nature, a nature that is promised eternal life, a nature that can enter into the kingdom of God um, at the resurrection. Uh, that nature was born by the seed of Christ through the Holy Spirit. This uh, satanic Messiah will have been born through the seed of the serpent, not through the seed of Christ. Um, and so his resurrection will be a demonic resurrection, a mimicry of life by the power of Satan. And what will be this Antichrist's character? Again, we read a little bit from Daniel uh, chapter 11. Um, for verses 1 and 2, but now we get to look in and see what is this man given a mimicry of life by the power of Satan? What is his activity on earth? This will be the most demonic man to have ever walked the earth, uh, far more even than Crowley, uh, head of the Church of the Occult. Daniel 11 reads, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god, for he will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over many and will parcel out land for a price. Now this, uh, this phrase in here, he will have no desire for women, has caused uh, many interpreters to identify the Antichrist as a homosexual. Uh, I don't know if that is as accurate as saying he may be asexual. That, uh, that doesn't necessarily take on the modern meaning of that word. What I think this is saying is he will have no time to be involved with human things. He is demonically empowered, uh, not for sexual lust, but for self-gratification through power. He will be power-hungry. He will be collecting to himself kingdoms and riches and fortresses, uh, and not necessarily of a materialistic nature, though it does say of gold, silver, and costly stones, but he's going to parcel out land for a price. We see that these are means to an end. These riches that he collects uh, mean something to the humans over which he will rule. Uh, it is only a means to an end of garnering power and, uh, and rulership over this earth. And that foreign God, which he will accept as his own, I believe is Satan unmasked. Whereas uh, many religions have gone after, 
gone after Satan under a veil. Um, I believe this will be open satanic worship, where Satan will be declared as the God, uh, because it is by Satan's power that the Antichrist, their ruler, who they will see as their Christ, has been resurrected. He will not point to Jesus Christ, but he will point to himself. And then he will point to Satan as the power behind himself. And the earth at that point, I believe, will accept that. We saw even, uh, I think it was 1940s or, or so, where the European Union, or maybe it wasn't the 40s, but the European Union, one man stood up who was head of that union and said, uh, we are looking for a ruler, a leader, and be he man or be he devil, we will accept him. They're looking for a world ruler. And uh, what is the character of the source of his power? What is the character of Satan? In Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, we read, um, but you said in your heart, this is God speaking to Satan, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. So Satan's aspirations are to put himself above God, to ascend even to the throne of God. So he is not satisfied with the earth, uh, that throne which uh, he's destined to lose anyways. He and his hubris believes that he can ascend even to God's throne. And his followers... Uh, we see that they will point to the beast and say, who is like the beast and who can make war with the beast? They will treat the Antichrist as faithful believers have treated God, uh, pointing to him in worship and awe and reverence. In Psalm 3510, uh, we see a Psalm of David, I believe, uh, pointing to God and saying, all my bones will say, Lord, who is like you? Who delivers the afflicted from him who is too strong for him? and the afflicted and the needy from him who robs him. And later, a psalm of Asaph. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is enthroned on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth? So we will see that these, uh, just as faithful believers worship God, so faithful servants of the Antichrist will worship him. And who can stand against God? In Jeremiah 49, 19, Jeremiah uh, has these words of encouragement for the, uh, the God who cannot be conquered. He says, behold, one will come up like a lion from the thickets of the Jordan against a perennial watered pasture. For in an instant, I will make him run away from it. And whoever is chosen, I shall appoint over it. For who is like me and who will summon me into court? And who then is the shepherd who can stand against me? Uh, Jeremiah lived in a time where uh, Judah was being threatened by, uh, by foreign powers. But this point in Jeremiah chapter 49, Jeremiah is looking forward to the final kingdom that will conquer over Israel. And Jesus Christ himself will chase that ruler out. Uh, again, Daniel chapter 7, um, if you continued on beyond where we stopped reading, you'll see that the Lord will come and conquer the final kingdom and he will establish his kingdom in an instant. It will be uh, in uh, Daniel chapter 2, we see this is pictured as a stone that comes and crushes the feet of the, uh, the statue. And then that stone quickly grows into a mountain and it covers the entire earth. This is the Lord's kingdom. So the Lord will come and chase out this antichrist. And we're going to look at that as we continue in this chapter. And then we're going to take a, a quick look at the end of the chapter or the book of Revelation so we can see what is the end of this Antichrist? Because I, I don't want to leave you guys wondering, uh, does he win? <laughs> he doesn't win, but um, it's always satisfying to look at how the Lord takes care of these uh, 
of these anti-God uh, personalities. And we see in Micah uh, the assurance that God alone is good. There will be no good that will come from the Antichrist. It will be only bad. In Micah 7, 18 to 20, we read, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity? Uh, that is a good one to start with. Who else pardons sins? God alone pardons sins. And, and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to your forefathers from the days of old. God has promised restoration to Israel. The Antichrist will come and promise peace to Israel. But then at the midpoint of the tribulation, he will seek to destroy them entirely. We see the opposite is the character of God, where he will chastise those he loves, just as, he just as a father chastises his son, but his love is unchanging towards Jacob and Abraham, and he will not destroy the remnant of Israel. All right, verses five and six. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So we see that the Antichrist will act on the earth, having the indwelling of Satan for 42 months. Now that is three and a half years. So at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist will arise and be the world power for the last three and a half years of Earth's history. So here's our tribulation timeline again. We see the first 1260 days are uh, very universal, where it's the entire Earth that is uh, the primary target of the conquering world superpower. Um, if you remember back to Revelation chapter 6, um, I really stressed the point that the, the uh, white horse is not the Antichrist himself, but the Antichrist's government, which will come promising peace. The Antichrist will be the center of that government, but he may not be very visible at that point. Uh, but it is important to realize that that peace that comes and that uh, white horse that arrives uh, looks an awful lot like the white horse um, that arrives in Revelation chapter 19. It will come looking like a savior. It will come looking like a Christ, promising covenants with people for peace. But God is a covenant maker who is a covenant keeper. Satan is a covenant maker who is a covenant breaker. Uh, the Antichrist will break that covenant and trample over Israel. We do see that uh, although the throne of the earth is in question throughout Revelation, uh, for us having the sure word of prophecy, it's not in question for us, but it will be in question for those dwelling on the earth. They will wonder who is the ruler of this earth. They will look to this Antichrist and see that he is in power um, over the throne of this earth. But uh, believers will have the continual assurance that God is sovereign. God does not give up his position on the universal throne. And ironically, Nebuchadnezzar recognized this. Uh, in Daniel chapter 4, uh, we see these words of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is one chapter in the book of Daniel, which was not written by Daniel. It was written by Nebuchadnezzar and collected by Daniel. Uh, again, it's fascinating stuff, but we're going to look at that uh, later. This, this is quite possibly one of the only uh, pieces of the Bible written by a non-Jew. Uh, so it's, it's very important. And in fact, Daniel chapter 4 is written by Nebuchadnezzar in the context that it is to be read by all Gentile rulers who come after him. Uh, the... The time of the Gentiles began with Nebuchadnezzar. 
God actually handed the permission to rule the earth over to the Gentiles um, at the time of Nebuchadnezzar, but we see that it was instituted on the recognition that God is the one true God of the universe, and he is also the one true God of Israel. So uh, Nebuchadnezzar handed down this decree, handed down this treaty that it is to be read by all those who rule in his place after him. And uh, that includes Joe Biden being a Gentile ruler. That includes Donald Trump. I hope he read Daniel chapter four while he was in office. Uh, that includes Boris Johnson and, uh, and uh, mm. Justin Trudeau. Mm. Nebuchadnezzar mm. is there, uh, is the king in whose tradition they rule. They rule as Gentile powers. Nebuchadnezzar was the foundation of their power. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the one to whom God gave the initial okay to rule as a Gentile. So he has authority over the current Gentile world rulers, and they ought to be listening mm -hmm. to his advice here in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, but he says, this sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers. And the decision is a command of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. This was Nebuchadnezzar's conclusion um, after the Lord disciplined him and showed him that he is God of the universe, not Nebuchadnezzar. This was when Nebuchadnezzar in his hubris thought that he had given himself power. Uh, God made it clear to him that God has given him power and he can take away that power. <clears throat> and that will be true of the Antichrist as well. God will allow him to have dominion on this earth for a time. But he will do that because a man in his sinfulness is looking for a ruler of his own making. He will do it in order to let man um, bring himself to the ultimate conclusion of his self-worship. Uh, this antichrist will be the ultimate self-worshipper. Uh, he will worship himself. He will wor worship himself in the power of Satan, falling for the same lie that Satan brought to Adam and Eve in the garden, saying, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. And that's why he doesn't want you to eat it. Uh, we see uh, eventually that the, the words of Christ will come true, that a house divided against itself will not stand, that each man seeking his own glory will not be able to rule. But we, being Christians born again by the Spirit, seeking God's glory and not our own, uh, will live in, uh, in wonderful glory in the kingdom under Christ. Uh, but the man of lawlessness is spoken of in 2 Thessalonians 2. In fact, the entire chapter, 2 Thessalonians 2, uh, gives us a lot of information about this time of the Antichrist's um, dwelling on this earth. But in uh, verses 3 to 4, we read, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the departure, that is the Greek word apostasia, away from the station, away from the stance, until the departure comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. So this son of destruction, this man of lawlessness, will appear after the departure uh, if you're curious of why I have uh, clarified there that the departure is the apostasia, um, you can look back at our resurrections video on the tribulation. Uh, it's uh, apostasia is often transliterated into the English as apostasy, um, but in doing so, uh, they've not done a very good word study to understand what in the context how in the context does Paul use this word? And he's using it in order to show that the, uh, the departure of the church 
the departure of the Holy Spirit indwelling the church will happen before the man of lawlessness is revealed. Uh, so we understand this to mean that the church will be raptured before the man of lawlessness is revealed. But here we also see him called the son of destruction. Uh, that is a term used in John where he's called the son of perdition. But this isn't used as the Antichrist. This is used to speak of Judas. And it says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. This is Jesus speaking. And I guarded them and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. So of those um, who were the Lord's disciples, the son of perdition was the only one which perished. And that was Judas. We see in uh, John chapter 13 that Judas was also possessed by Satan himself. These are the only two characters in scripture that we see personally possessed by Satan. Satan is not omnipresent. He can only be in one location at one time. Uh, his efforts are much better spent elsewhere than in dwelling uh, man. His demons, his fallen angels, are used more often for that purpose, especially around the time of Christ, because Satan really threw every, uh, every attempt he could to thwart uh, Jesus Christ's purpose on earth. Uh, so we see an incredible amount of demonic activity in the Gospels because Satan was trying to stop uh, the redemption that Jesus Christ brought to mankind. So we see one of those purposes was so important to Satan that he personally indwelled uh, a man, and that was Judas. In John 13, we see Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel. Uh, and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what will you, what you do, do quickly. Um, so we see that Satan actually personally indwelled Judas at the time where Judas's mind was made up to betray Jesus Christ and where his uh, where the action necessary to get to that point was required, Satan made sure that uh, Ju Judas would not mess up. He indwelled in himself, and from that point forward, uh, the actions of Judas uh, were willingly guided by Satan. Um, Judas willingly gave himself up to Satan. We see in Matthew 25 uh, what Jesus calls the abomination of desolation. Again, we see uh, the records in the Apocrypha, the book of Maccabees, which are only history, they are not inspired word of God. Uh, but we also see from Josephus, uh, this, uh, this man, Antiochus Epiphanes, who Jesus Christ here says, essentially, that was not the man, but the man is still coming who will fulfill this prophecy of Daniel. So we read, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. So this will be at the point in which the, the events of Revelation chapter 12, where Israel needs to flee and God will uh, help them in their escape to the mountains, their cue to leave is when they see this Antichrist animated, because at the time that he is animated, he will put himself in the temple of God that will be rebuilt during the tribulation period, or at least operative by the time of this tribulation period. He will put himself in the temple of God in Jerusalem and claim that he himself is God by means of uh, being a Christ or the Christ. So Jesus tells them, when you see a man come and do this, run, essentially, because uh, that is when the Antichrist will come against them. That is when he will break his covenant with them. Daniel 9.27 uh, indicates this for us. It says, and he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. And uh, again, in the Hebrew, this one week just means for one seven. 
uh, it is transliterated, actually not transliterated, it is directly translated uh, to mean week because seven Shabbat in um, Hebrew means both the number seven and the day, kind of like in Portuguese where they don't have actual names for their days, they just say day one, day two, all the way up through uh, day seven. Uh, that's very much like how Hebrew is, where it just uses the number to speak of the day. So the seventh day, they took it here in Daniel 9, and they translated it week, but it simply means one set of seven. Uh, so it says, he will make a firm covenant with many for one set of seven. In the context, we understand that as years. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of this seven, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations, he will come one who makes desolate, that is the Antichrist. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So we see that this, the destruction of this Antichrist is decreed. We know that the word of God will not fail. That uh, although... This is allowed for a time in order to show man the consequences of his sinfulness in order to point them towards the one who saves rather than the one who destroys who they've chosen to go after. Uh, God will, in the end, destroy this Antichrist, but until that time, he will be the one who makes desolate. He's given a very short period of time, just three and a half years, uh, to enact his evil will. So this is the final Antichrist. The term Antichrist comes from the epistle of John. Um, John likes to speak in absolute contrasts. He speaks of light and dark. He speaks of life and death. Um, and he speaks of Christ and the Antichrist. So he says, the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, it is the last hour. And that word hour means times. It is the last time. Uh, this, I believe, is speaking of the ages that God has chosen to uh, orchestrate his, uh, his purposes on earth. We see under the law in Israel. Um, currently, we are in the church age. Um, what John is saying here is this is the last age. This is it. Uh, this is our last run. It says, children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist, uh, that is a singular, Antichrist with a singular corollary, just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. So uh, contrary to many popular teachings, the church will not bring in the golden age of, uh, of the kingdom but it will in fact be plagued with many antichrists. Jesus Christ will bring in the kingdom. The church will not. The church will be brought into the kingdom by Jesus Christ. Um, so this is something that I'm not even sure how the, how the idea came about. Um, it seems to have arisen in the third or fourth century that the church's purpose is to build the kingdom of God. We are a part of the kingdom of God, but God builds his kingdom. Uh, we are allowed to participate in that, uh, but it is he who builds his kingdom. And we are in training for leadership and rulership in the kingdom, uh, but we are not yet in the kingdom. Uh, the danger of thinking that we are uh, really comes to light when you read the new, through the New Testament and see that the ruler of this world, the one who has, is in the possession of the kingdom of this world, is Satan. Uh, we don't want to confuse God's kingdom with Satan's kingdom. Uh, many people have attempted to uh, say things like uh, Satan is on a leash, but it's a long leash. Um, this is God's kingdom. He's, in, he's ruling over this earth, uh, but he's allowed Satan a long leash. Satan will have absolutely no leash. Uh, during the kingdom of God, uh, especially in days like this, uh, where we see, again, a, a power like the Taliban rising in the Middle East, this can be very confusing for Christians who believe that the kingdom of God is now on this earth. Uh, 
because that is not the promise given to us in scripture. The promise of God's kingdom will be that he will rule with a rod of iron, that sin will not be tolerated for any amount of time. Satan will be uh, locked up in the pit. He will not have influence over mankind. Um, so we are to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ, keep our eyes on the kingdom to come, um, and know that that is our hope. And Paul says that that hope purifies us, that when we, um, when we seek to share our hope with others, uh, that is building the kingdom, not establishing uh, church authority powers over, over the laity, such as the Catholic Church has done. Uh, we only see bloodshed when that happens. But anyways, we know that this is the last days um, because antichrists have appeared. This is what was promised. This is what was depicted that the last days would be like. But these antichrists will have a final culmination in the one man of the antichrist. Uh, so we see all of these false teachers who have pointed to other gods. Um, they will have a final corollary, and that is the Antichrist. Uh, continuing in 2 Thessalonians 2.6, uh, we see that he is also uh, in line with what is called the mystery of lawlessness. This is uh, an uh, antithetical to the mystery of righteousness that is in the church, um, that is through the Holy Spirit. So this comes through a false spirit, a lawless spirit of the Antichrist. We read, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. This mystery of lawlessness is juxtaposed against the mystery of righteousness. He who restrains for now is the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ sent the Holy Spirit to this earth after his ascension um, in order that he might restrain evil uh, and indwell the believers and be a helper. This helping is not only in the, uh, in the person of, uh, of the believer so that he might enable him to good works, but he is also present on this earth as a helper to restrain the tide of evil uh, that is against um, the sons of God. So this mystery of lawlessness is this antichrist spirit that is already in this earth, but so is the mystery of righteousness also in this earth. Um, and thankfully, that is the spirit that we have been given is the mystery of righteousness. And continuing in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 to 10, we read, then the then that lawless one will be revealed at the time that the mystery of righteousness is taken out of this earth, when the Holy Spirit's current ministry in the church as an indwelling, regenerating, baptizing, filling uh, ministry, when that ministry ceases and it returns to the pre-church ministry of coming upon certain individuals, uh, but acting uh, from outside, not from within. Uh, when that ministry is again taken up by the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the helper, as in the helper of the church, is over, this lawlessness will be unleashed on the earth. So then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is uh, whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So this is uh, Paul speaking to the Thessalonian church, telling them of uh, what will result after they, as part of the church, will be removed either by death or by rapture, um, this is the culmination of the age of the church, will be uh, the kingdom of Satan. And finally, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 through 12, we read, 
For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they will all, that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. When they choose against God, when they choose to follow after, uh, after Satan by believing the lie of Satan, that we can be as gods, we can even be our own gods or the saviors of ourselves, that we don't need Jesus Christ. When we spurn the gift of Jesus Christ during the tribulation, God will hand them over to their desires. He will send them a deluding influence. Uh, you, you almost get the image of uh, God will give them morphine so that they're uh, they will walk willingly into their own destruction. Uh, but really what's happening is he is he is veiling their eyes further. They have chosen to walk in the darkness rather than walking in the light, as John tells us, rather than heeding the word of God, rather than choosing truth. They have chosen a lie. So God only gives them more of what they have chosen for themselves. He gives them a deluding influence, and they will believe what is false. All right, and here is our king of Tyre, Ezekiel 28.2. Son of man, say to the leader of Tyre, thus says the Lord God, because your heart is lifted up and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are a man and not God, although you make your heart like the heart of God. So in the, uh, the ensuing verses in Ezekiel 28, we'll see that uh, God speaks to a man who cannot be the true king of Tyre, uh, but who is indeed a supernatural being. Uh, but he does begin speaking to the king of Tyre, but he gives a, a far prophecy first of the man who will come in the likeness of the king of Tyre, the Antichrist, and then I think about uh, Ezekiel 28:14 or so around there, he switches to the source of the king of Tyre's power, uh, which is Satan himself. <clears throat> so here in Revelation 11, 7 through 8, this was two chapters ago, um, we saw this man already in Revelation, and that's why uh, that's why sometimes these few chapters here in the middle are hard to understand because chapter 11, again, was a parenthetical. It is where we get a little bit of information to see the background of what is going on. Uh, it gives us information that we need in order to understand um, the source of the uh, revival that happened in chapter 7. That will be these two witnesses that God will bring up um, in the first half of the tribulation but that will be killed at the midpoint of the tribulation and God will resurrect them after three days. So in Revelation 11, seven through eight, we read, when they have finished their testimony, that is the two witnesses, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt where also their Lord was crucified. This beast that comes up out of the abyss, the abyss to kill the two witnesses is most likely the Antichrist himself. And it will happen in a very short period of time that he will kill these two witnesses. He will stand in the temple of God and declare himself to be God. And he will be, uh, he will be killed himself with a sword and then resurrected by the power of Satan. Now, it's possible that those will happen in the reverse order from which I said them, where he may first be killed um, and then resurrected and then kill the two witnesses and then stand in the temple and say that he is God. Um, whether or not he kills the two witnesses first or second, um, that's the one that's uh, hard, to, hard to know. In fact, uh, Tim LaHaye, which I promise you is not where I'm doing my research, but it's a series I've read a couple of times. Uh, Tim LaHaye puts the murder of the two witnesses first. Um, and I think that's because it comes first in the text. Um, chapter seven is, or 11 is the murder of the two witnesses. 
All right, so in summary for these few verses, the Antichrist will come claiming to be the Christ. He will perform many signs which are prophesied of the Messiah, but he will do so in the same manner as the Egyptian magicians. Many who have not believed in God and God's Messiah who remain ignorant until that time because of their blindness, again in 2 Corinthians 4.4, we see that their initial blindness is because of the blinding of Satan where they can, uh, uh, they can yield to the witness of the Holy Spirit, which convicts them of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and so believe in Jesus Christ. But if they have denied also the Holy Spirit's, uh, the Holy Spirit's means of taking off the blinders of Satan, God will also blind them so that Satan has blinded them. They have refused to take the blindfold off, so God will also blind them and send them away. But that is 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, which also identifies Satan as the current uh, god of this world, um, the ruler of this world.